Good morning. Fear. Fear is a natural part of human life. And the scientists will argue that it's actually good for us, that it informs us of potential danger. However, a number of others, sociologists, have pointed out an anomaly when it comes to fear. Now, COVID aside, we live in one of the safest countries in the world, in one of the safest times in human history. But as a society, we are more afraid than ever. And our sense of fear and insecurity has been heightened recently, courtesy of the COVID-19 thing. Now, fear is driven by a threat of loss. When something we value, something we care about, is under threat, we're afraid. Now, someone makes a threat against something that has no value to us, there's no fear. But as soon as you increase the value, you increase the sense of threat, and so you increase the experience of fear. And what we fear, because of this fear of loss, it exerts power over us. It controls us. Now, way back in the 4th century, an African Christian, Augustine, wrote this. Whether they will or no, a person is necessarily a slave to the things by which they seek to be happy. They follow them wherever they lead, and they fear anyone who seems to have the power to rob them of them. When he speaks here of the things that we seek to be happy, it's a bigger concept than just a mere emotion. It's closer to the biblical idea of shalom, of peace, contentment, well-being. He's speaking of those things where we find meaning and purpose, where we discover identity. Now, it's a very human thing to engage in this lifelong struggle to preserve those things we value against threat. But we must also recognise that it is a struggle that we are destined to lose. Recently, our complete lack of control has been vividly exposed. Also, death is the ultimate threat. Hebrews 2 verse 15 speaks of all who... Uh, are held in slavery by their fear of death. But however, fear is not the issue. To be afraid is to be human. It's a product of our limited human condition. It's not a problem to experience fear. It's only logical that in some circumstances to be afraid is entirely appropriate. So what's the issue? The issue is when that fear controls us, when we live our lives as slaves, when we act in ways that we know are wrong, when we are controlled and distorted, when fear leads to us living lives far less than what God has made us for. So as we dive into Philippians this morning, we're going to explore what Scripture tells us about how we can be liberated from the power of fear and live courageously for a purpose 
that really matters. Good morning, folks. My name is Rick, and it's my privilege to read the Word of God for us this morning. If you have a Bible at home, I'm going to give you the place. You can look it up and read along with me. It's Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 18b. That's Philippians chapter 1, reading starting at 18b. But if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. When I start reading, the text will appear on the screen behind me. You know, God's word is incredibly powerful. But the thing of it is that we can push back against it. Or even worse, we can tune out and not even consider it. Neither of these is a good idea. We need to come and say to God that we want to hear and understand his word and ask him to give us soft and receptive hearts. Join me and let us ask God to do just that. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we want to hear and understand your word. Lord, make our hearts soft to receive your word. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18b. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I did desire to depart and, and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Thanks, Rick. Three points again this morning. One, an unshakable assurance. Two, an overwhelming affection. And three, a compelling ambition. An unshakable assurance. Now, in the opening section of this letter, the guy who wrote it, Paul, he demonstrates a radical confidence. He has this wonderful sense of security. Now, what does it rest upon? Well, over the last two weeks, we have seen that it rests upon the simple fact that Paul is not in control and he knows it. He rejoices in it because it is God who is in control. He knows that no human foundation for confidence and security stands in the long term. 
When we look to other things, to family, to achievement and relationships, money, assets, career, reputation, you name it, we will see that none of these things can deliver. A wise man said that if you live long enough, you will lose pretty much everything you value. But Paul has this unshakable assurance and it rests on God's sovereign control. And this idea literally saturates this opening chapter of the letter to the Philippians. Simply, the God of the Bible, the only God, is the sovereign Lord of history. He began it, he planned it out, and it will bring, he will bring it to conclusion exactly as he's determined. Now this is true for the cosmos generally, as well as for each of us specifically. And as we have been reminded, the fact that God is sovereign means that there is nothing that can threaten God's purpose in the lives of his people. We read in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His ultimate goal can never be blocked. He is the unstoppable God. He will achieve his purpose and no sin, circumstance or suffering can get in the way. And his purpose is the best purpose that we can have. His vision for blessing outstrips anything we might dream up for ourselves. Now, it's probably fair to say that our vision of the best may not always line up with the purpose that God reveals in his word. However, it's a bit like this. Ask a small child for their idea of the ultimate meal. It probably looks a bit like this. A Macca's happy meal with a sundae and an apple pie for dessert with a refill of Fanta. Now, adults might see that this is hardly a vision of ultimate gourmet. I think it's fair to say that an adult with a bit more experience and capacity to grasp the possibilities of what could be would come up with something more than this. Hopefully this helps you see the point. Our Heavenly Father, in His infinite goodness and wisdom, has planned out what is best. He determines our steps in order to bring us pure and blameless before Him on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1 verses 10 and 11. And Paul does not merely intellectually assent to God's sovereignty. It's a fact that transforms his heart and so his life. Overwhelming affection. Now you may recall that Paul's at this time he's writing is under house arrest. He's under personal attack from opponents in the church and he faces possible execution. And yet, in his letter, we find him upbeat and rejoicing. His work, his influence, his reputation, his very life is under threat. And these are good things that he would rightly value. And yet he rejoices because of this 
I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because he knows that God's purposes are being achieved. Paul faces death, that ultimate enemy, and he writes in verse 21, to die is to gain. Now, what's the deal? It's not escapism. Now, Paul is not seeking an easy way out, nor is Christianity a masochistic death cult, one that idolizes pain and suffering and death. Just a chapter later, he speaks of very real grief, sorrow upon sorrow, as he contemplates the sickness and possible death of Epaphroditus. So how does Paul come to this place? And is it a place for us? Well, just before these words in verse 21, we read, To live is Christ. To live is Christ. What does that mean? Simply, his life finds its total meaning in Christ. For Paul, there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more valuable. Jesus is the pearl of great value that a person will sell everything to purchase. Now, going back to Augustine, he wrote that a person is necessarily a slave to the things by means of which they seek to be happy. For Paul, this is Christ, and he acknowledges it. He introduces himself at the start of the letter literally as a doulos, a slave of Christ. The title, the exalted title that he claims, is slave. To live is Christ means that Christ is his joy. Christ is where he finds meaning. Christ is the one who defines his identity. Christ alone is his hope. Now, this raises a question for us. Is this how we see God? Is this who Jesus is for us? Unfortunately, we can be tempted to see Jesus as a personal assistant, as a means to an end. So do we want Christ or do we want what he can give us? Is our faith merely a form of spiritual self-interest? Have we hired God to help us achieve our ends? We bargain, we put up with a little bit of inconvenience, we do what he asks of us so that he might give us what we really want. Is this what God is for us, a means to an end? How would you know? Well, one way is when we find ourselves at a crossroad and the road of obedient discipleship leads in the opposite direction to the road of self-interest. Let me give some examples. A single person, Christian, tempted to pursue a relationship with someone who's not a believer, even though scripture makes it clear that when we have a choice, which we all do, we are to choose someone who is in the Lord. Where's blessing found? God or relationship? Or you've made a mistake at work, perhaps through negligence or just oversight, and you're tempted to lie or at least shift the blame, to cover over the error, to avoid damage to your reputation. Where is blessing found? 
God or reputation, God or career advancement. Or your child is offered an opportunity to adjoin that elite sport group, that music group, that drama group, but it will mean that they can't be in regular fellowship with their peers or they can't be part of the church as a whole. Where is blessing found for you and for them? Is it in God or self-development? God or the worldly success of your child? Now, we will all engage the self-justification apparatus. Perhaps that's happening for you right now. We defend our choice. We try to convince ourselves that the fiction is that we can have both. But the reality is we can't. We can't serve two masters. We will love one and hate the others. We fear we fear the loss of opportunity, the loss that may be real, the loss that may be actual. We say to ourselves, I need that, and so it enslaves us. And sometimes we seek to leverage God to get what we crave. Tim Keller wrote a fictitious prayer of this person. Lord, you are not enough. This is more beautiful, more fulfilling and sweet to my taste than you are. You are negotiable, but this is not. Despite all you've done for me, I will only use you as long as you help me get this. You are negotiable, but this is not. You haven't done enough for me. And if you don't help me have this, I will discard you. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? How do we see God? How do we see Christ? Can we say with Paul that to live is Christ? For Paul, there was nothing more important, no one more lovely than Jesus. If Christ is our highest good, the pinnacle of our affection, if he's our God in truth as well as in name, we find this incredibly freeing. Because the promise of the gospel is nothing can take him from us. No sin, no circumstance, no suffering. And this gives us courage. That's how Paul rejoiced in prison. That's where his joy, his confidence and his courage came from. This is how death becomes gain. Better by far, he writes. It merely ushers us into the presence of the one who gave everything to save us. The one who broke the power of death by the power of his indestructible life. And through Christ's death and resurrection, his life is offered to us. So when Paul looks at life and death, it's not a matter of good and bad. It's a matter of good and best. And the best is so good that for the Christian, death is transformed. Death becomes the doorman that ushers us into the presence of the king. Death cannot rob the Christian of their greatest joy. It merely brings us face to face with him. As the song Christ Our Glory declares, Be still and remember, the worst that can come 
bust shortens our journey and hastens us home. This overwhelming affection, Paul's and ours, shapes ambition, a compelling ambition. In 1 verse 20, we read that Paul desires that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He doesn't want to be ashamed because he's brought dishonor to Christ. That is Paul's number one goal. Every other ambition, every other desire and concern comes second to this. This is Paul's non-negotiable. Whatever the cost, whether by life or death, Christ must be exalted. Now, is this stupid self-sacrifice? No. Christ is his highest good. He strives to see the one he loves above all honoured in his life and in the lives of others. And to achieve this goal, any sacrifice is worth it. Think about the sacrifices people make to achieve glory in their chosen field, sport or music or art or academics. The vision of that future possible glory makes all the suffering, all the cost worth it. Perhaps a better illustration. For parents, the day when your child leaves home, when you see them step into adult life, succeeding as a competent human being. Now, the focus isn't on the cost, the very real cost, the sacrifices you've made, but on the joy in seeing them thrive. For Paul, seeing Christ honoured is his driving ambition. And to achieve this end is a goal worth giving his life for. Because Jesus Christ in his nature and his work, is beyond compare. It captures Paul's heart and it changes his ambition. Just a few verses later, Paul records what appears to be an early Christian song about Jesus. It proclaims his excellencies. Let me summarize. In his essential nature, Jesus is God with all the power and glory, and yet in humility he sets that aside. He turns away from self-interest. He's born as a man. And in obedience, he goes to the cross. The king's life given to redeem rebels justly condemned. God the Father then raises him triumphant from death and honours him above all. Christ reigns and he will return to bring all things to acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you don't get better than that. You don't find someone more impressive than that. Paul wants nothing above this king being honoured. He wants God's name to be hallowed. And so we see this ambition as the touchstone for his deliberations in verses 23 through to 26. So what would Paul choose for himself? Well, verse 23 tells us that to depart and be with Christ is better by far. To die is gain. 
But for Paul, what he would choose is not the deciding factor. Personal preference is stated and then dismissed. His aim is to see Christ exalted, not to serve himself. Now, the key issue for Paul is what will bring Christ the most honour? What will exalt him above all? What will bring his plans to bless as the gospel is preached? And so Paul writes that he's confident that he will be released and so he can continue to minister amongst the Philippians and others for their joy and progress in the faith. Now, it's worth pausing a moment and reflecting on how Paul makes decisions. Where does Christ's glory figure in our process of arriving at a decision? What is your greatest concern? Your dreams or God's purposes? We must recognise that it's only our labour in the Lord that will stand. Do we long to hear the king's acclaim? Well done, good and faithful servant. So let's bring this home. Where will we find what is best? How will we live courageously, resisting fear for a purpose that really matters? It's when we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and then by implication, to die as gain. When Jesus Christ and his Father are more beautiful to us than anything else. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the old hymn says. Look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we come face to face with God and his spirit opens it to us. As we look into his word and particularly through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, there we can gaze upon his beauty. We can marvel at his infinite worth. It is there we can see what God did to give us the right to call him father. The Christian author John Piper writes, it is God that makes the good news good. The gospel is not just a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. Now, once we see what God has given to bring us to himself through the death and resurrection of his son, once we see his excellence, it is there that we will find courage in the face of hardship and death. We will find joy in the face of setbacks and opposition. Because we have Christ and through Christ we can call his father our father. Because nothing and no one can take him from us. We can face the future with confidence.